welcome to Injury Prevention Podcast. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention. Each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner, and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. My guest today is Professor Ian Roberts. Ian is the Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health and Co-Director of the Clinical Trials Unit at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hello, Ian. Hello. I'd like you to take us on a journey. But let's start by jumping straight to the point in your career that you think has been the most critical. Did you have a moment where it all seemed to come together and make sense? Mm. Um, well, I, I know the moment I got interested in injury prevention. Um, and that was like over 35 years ago right. when I was a junior hospital doctor working in a in Auckland, New Zealand, and um, and I was working in critical care. I was the paediatrician on the critical care unit, and so I was part of the trauma team. And then and then one day we got called down to the emergency department, and there was a, there'd been a head-on car crash just outside of Auckland, and um, the parents were in the front of the car, and the little girl was in the back of the car, and she was. Um, the daughter of this family, maybe 10 years old, and she had a lap belt on. And so she didn't have any, the lap belt uh, protected her from head injury, but she sort of had slid under the lap belt. And so she came into the emergency department um, fully conscious, but really deathly pale. She's obviously bleeding from somewhere. And my job was to protect the airway. So I was kind of holding her head in my hands. And, And then we, just talking to her and uh you know she was scared and asking if she was going to be all right and i said yes i think we're going to be all you're going to be all right because we're going to take you to the operating room and and mend the bleeding points in your tummy and then you put you back together and you're going to be all right and then i gave her an anesthetic and we took her off to the operating room and then about an hour later i went up to see how she was getting on and i saw the surgeon coming out and she died on the table. And and that just hit me like a sledgehammer. I don't know why. Mm. But um and I'd I'd had my first child, my daughter by then. I just once you have children, you realise that you can't imagine anything worse happening to you than something happening to your child. And I so that really struck me, that whole event. And then I thought, well, okay, this critical care, emergency medicine, it's all very well but it's not very radical. You know, these patients are going to keep coming and uh, it has to be about prevention. You, you were there in an in emergency department with uh, a critical case and your brain was working overtime probably around the time of the child's presentation. But then you're, you're, you made a few leaps to prevention and classically and probably most of your colleagues wouldn't have made that leap. Second thing you did was when you found somebody else who happened to be in that space at the time, the primary prevention space, you just bowled up and said, this is interesting, uh, what can we learn together? And and you then threaded the epidemiology, which was something that you'd been exposed to in the past. And and that helped you put that third piece together, that, that window of opportunity, those three things came together. Yeah, I found... Um there was somebody in the Department of 
community health it was in Auckland University who was setting up an injury prevention research centre. Uh, Robin Norton, uh, she was setting up an injury prevention research centre, and I, I went, I went to talk to her, and I said, "Look, you know, I want to come and work with you," and. Uh, and then I did. Uh, I mean, it was a, a bit of a meandering path after that. But um, eventually I started working in her uh, injury prevention research unit on prevention of pedestrian injuries in children. Um, I think I sort of slept through the epidemiology lecture and I was a medical student. I, I was taught it, but I can't remember being taught it. Um, but then I saw, you know, epidemiology is really interesting and valuable and then I got into sort of prevention first and then epidemiology in the context of injury treatment second. Right. You said that you meandered a little bit after that but uh, was there another time when things came together for you that actually took you that next step in your thinking? I mean just in terms of going from treatment to prevention I, I think the um, and you said you know not many people make that link I think I was in a I was more lucky than most because the consultants on the critical care unit uh, at the Auckland Hospital, they were also very interested in injury prevention. So they'd kind of legitimized it for right. me right. already. And Auckland, there's a big harbour and there's a harbour bridge. Hmm. And the traffic goes in two directions. And there were lots of crashes uh, on the harbour bridge. And it that re resulted in patients being in our critical care unit. So we had lots of young men on ventilators with head injuries as a result of crashes on the Harbour Bridge. Now the consultants on, on the uh, critical care unit lobbied for a medium barrier. They were very active. They, they would go on the radio and the, on the television and, and eventually they got a medium barrier for, on mm. the Auckland Bridge. And this medium barrier is controversial because the, the traffic flows are in different directions in the morning and the, in the evening, understandably. And so they managed to get a movable medium barrier. It's like this big machine laid these concrete blocks and then it laid them slightly in a different position to open up an extra lane on the way back. And it resulted in a visible decline in the number of patients on the unit. Right. And I just mm. thought, my goodness, look, mm. compared to injury treatment, mm. injury prevention just, it's so radical. Yeah. You know, it yeah. just trumps everything else. And so I, I don't think I was particularly exceptional, but I was had this lucky experience to have seen the leadership of these people on the critical care unit doing something um, and having a really big result. A nice example of uh, leadership in a, in a field as well, isn't it? Mm. I suspect that there would be many situations where primary prevention interventions could be effective, but not quite so visibly. Yeah, I think so. I think the, um, the, diff the whole th difficulty about prevention is that if you're successful, nothing happens. And, right. then, and so you don't, it's very difficult to see it. Um, I mean, you can see it in the numbers and things like that. But um, once you collect enough numbers together, isn't it, rather yeah. than the individual case? Yeah, but you, but uh, in this case, it was actually tangible on on the critical care unit. You right. know, you actually there were less yeah. people in beds. Yeah, blindingly obvious. Yeah, yes. it seemed to be. Yeah. So you you were then surrounded not only by clinical leaders, but uh, in Robin Norton, somebody who was thinking in the the science of prevention. 
in New Zealand. This was about 35 years ago you're talking now, isn't it? I think it was. Yes, yeah. quite a while ago. Yeah. And uh, you subsequently went to McGill University in Canada. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I did a PhD uh, with Robin as my supervisor, and this was a case control study for risk factors uh, for child pedestrian injury. And then I got a postdoc with Barry Pless in McGill. And uh, and that was a nice, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I, it was nice to meet Barry, to work, to live in Montreal for a year, which is a really lovely place. You know, a little French enclave in, in, uh, in, in North America, in Canada. And um, it, it was a really nice opportunity to be there. So your, your PhD was pedestrian injury in children. Was that a case control study? Yeah, it was, a, it was a case control study of predominantly focusing on environmental risk factors for child pedestrian injury. And, and uh, what we did, we, we did is we compared children who'd been killed or hospitalized as a result of child pedestrian injury and their environments with randomly sampled children from, from, the, from the Auckland area. And uh, the, I mean, in a way, it's kind of laughably obvious, but the the strongest environmental risk factors were the speed and volume of traffic in the in the area where they lived. So children tend to be injured quite close to home and um, the speed and volume of traffic, it, vol the volume of traffic particularly was, was a strong risk factor. Right. So if you live in a busy traffic area, mm. uh, you're you're much more likely to be killed or injured. And the speed of traffic came out uh, quite a strong factor as right. well. One of the things that struck me about the, that work that you're describing was this identification of, I guess, exposure. Um, what you're talking about there is you're more likely to get hit by a car if there are more cars in, yeah, in your it's, environment. It's laughable, isn't it? it? Yes, but probably not. In fact, definitely not then, and certainly not even now in the sense that uh, people aren't thinking of exposure in terms of exposure to hazards, uh, given that most of our exposure methodologies have been generated around chronic disease where there's a continuous ongoing ambient exposure, generally anyway. Mm. Um, so some of your work has actually been to move the methodology as well as to move the content area, hasn't it? I, I, maybe, but the, um, the, the critical thing was that it's all, it's kind of about ideology. It's, it's like, when I looked at the literature before that, it took the traffic system as a given. It's like there will be cars traveling at speed everywhere in children's environments. So what can children do to cope with that? And <laughs> I started um, being slapped in the face by this obvious result. Maybe they well, actually, well, that's not... It doesn't have to be like that. Mm. You know, the children could be there um, and the traffic could get out of the way. In fact, one of the wonderful things about New Zealand is this multicultural uh, aspect with um, Maori uh, and Pacific Island culture. But um, at one stage, we, um, we presented the results to the Maori community and, and uh, that have a fantastic oral tradition. And, and, and this guy stood up and he said, I know what you're telling us, doctor. You're telling us we should stop telling the children the traffic's coming and start telling the traffic that the children are coming. Yeah. And I loved that. So true. Yeah. I loved that, yeah. 
instead of uh, the somewhat difficult conclusion that some people come to is that it's safer if the children get into the cars. But if we're talking um, about critical moments, mm. and you're, you described a really nice critical moment, I think, which is incredibly compelling there in, in the night with a patient whose life's at risk. But you've just described a second one, I think, which has characterised a big contribution that I feel you've made to the field, and that's notion of uh, challenging the basic assumptions, and that if road safety uh, is defined in a certain way, then the answer is to make cars safer. If transport is the problem, if mobility is the problem, then we can encourage the mobility with Im and improvements therein, and the safety in that, by designing cars out of that context. And that, that's a shift which you've come back to on any number of occasions over the years, isn't it, about uh, trying to find the uh, a system solution to something that actually actually buy into the vested interests that are already there. Yeah, I, I think the um, what I realised, that if you focus on trying to re-engineer the traffic environment um, to make it safer for children, or to make it safer for everybody, you get so many other advantages as well. You, because um, injury is just one adverse impact of a car-based transportation system or a fossil fuel-based transportation system. And if you take the fossil fuels or the cars away, actually, you, you know, there's less injury, there's less climate change, there's less urban air pollution, uh, there's more physical activity because now the urban environment's become a, a safer, more pleasant place to, to be and to move around in. And, you know, there's just lots of win-wins. And mm. from a public health point of view, let alone the, the key one, that actually it's just a nicer place to live. You know, mm. nobody wants to live, um, you know, next to a motorway. Nobody wants to live next to, a you know, dual carriageway uh, everybody wants to hear the birds and see trees um, if you can uh, at the moment all of those things are rationed by the ability and willingness to pay for them more the ability to pay for them so that you know people who've got lots of money can live in a nice area people who haven't are closer to the cars and, and right. the fumes and everything like mm. that so you know if you start thinking of the transport system trying to redesign the transport system to meet the needs of of you know the of people um there's so many more benefits and so um thinking of injury prevention in the context of environmental sustainability right um perhaps we could close by me bringing you back to where you started sort of closing the loop but recognizing that uh you yourself, over the course of your career, have, have moved through primary prevention back into uh, acute care management, uh, which is where you described you, you began. Uh, I gather you've been the principal investigator of the crash trials, and there have been several phases of those, and uh, you've worked on some substantial international large-scale trials of tranexamic acid. Um, can you talk a little bit now, just to close, with where you're current focus of work is in terms of this continuum of injury from primary prevention, secondary prevention, acute care management and rehabilitation? Yeah, I, I, th I mean, this goes back to the sort of postdoc I had in McGill with um, Barry Pless. Uh, they had a very nice uh, seminar program. And one of the 
people who came to give a seminar was a guy called Ian Chalmers, who was setting up an organisation called the Cochrane Collaboration at the time. And I heard him speak and I thought, what we need is a Cochrane Injuries Group to review the evidence for the um, prevention, treatment and rehabilitation of injury. Eventually, we managed to do that. We set up a Cochrane Injuries Group and we started reviewing the evidence. And what became clear is that actually the evidence base for prevention is very good. You know, lots of things in prevention really work and we know that they work. Uh, the evidence base for treatment was complete rubbish. <laughs> you know, actually, most of the things that doctors do to injured patients have never been shown to improve their outcome. You know, they're all acts of faith. And, and, and then and starting to think, well, how can we improve that? So we looked around and the people who had treatments they knew were safe and effective were the cardiologists. Right. And the reason why they knew that was because they were doing big trials. Mm. So, you know, cardiological trials, you know, ISIS, you know, effective treatments for myocardial infarction. So we said, well, right, let's start doing big trials in trauma because there's no shortage of trauma in the world. Our first big trial was corticosteroids in head injury. Half the world believed corticosteroids were good, half the world believed they were bad. So we, we randomized 10,000 patients and found out pretty much they were bad. Um, and then we came across this drug, tranexamic acid, which uh, um, there'd been lots of small trials in, in surgical patients, and it really did reduce bleeding. So then we thought, well, I wonder if it will reduce bleeding in trauma. And we did a big trial called CRASH-2, and it was a highly statistically significant reduction in the risk of bleeding to death if you get mm. tranexamic acid. Mm. And it's a cheap drug, it's widely available, and and that was great. So we, we got a very good result from our second big trial. And then we just sort of followed our noses from there. Like uh, While we were doing the CRASH-2 trial, centers in Africa, the doctors started telling us, well, why aren't we doing a trial of tranexamic acid in postpartum hemorrhage? Because, you know, the young men come in with bleeding trauma and die. The young women come in with postpartum hemorrhage and die. So we did a, a trial called the WOMAN trial. And uh, tranexamic acid had exactly the same re result in uh, postpartum hemorrhage as it does in trauma. And, and so after that, we sort of turned our research focus onto hemorrhage. And so now we're focused on hemorrhage from wherever it happens in the body. Uh, we've got a big trial called CRASH-3 that's going to re report towards the end of the year of uh, tranexamic acid in traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. 13,000 patients. We've got a trial of tranexamic acid in gastrointestinal bleeding. And we've got a trial of tranexamic acid for the prevention of postpartum hemorrhage in high-risk uh, anemic women. So if you're talking about trials in 13,000 patients, they're substantial efforts, aren't they? They are, yeah. They take far too long. They take years and years. Yeah. So. And so might this conversation, I think, if we follow it to all <laughs> its interesting points. So let's call it a close today. We've been listening to Professor Ian Roberts from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on Injury Prevention Podcast, which comes out on the first Thursday of each month. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com.